Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. John Fowler is here. John is a former Australian diplomat. He's still Australian. He's a former diplomat for Australia, now living in Chicago. He's one of the founders of International Intrigue, which is a newsletter um, and a website and a media company uh, that you should totally sign up for if you are interested in learning about what's going on in the world. As it says on the website, we help you make sense of an increasingly volatile world with our clear, irreverent, and concise takes on important global issues we think you might want to know about. Um, I've signed up for this. It's really really good, as I tell John in the interview. I wanted to talk to him about China because that's where he was stationed. And I wanted to talk to him about Australia, too, because, you know, Australia is such an important ally. I personally don't know much about the political scene there. I want to know more. So this is a great conversation if you're interested in two super important countries, especially in that part of the world. I kept saying, I have very easy questions about China to ask you. And then I'd ask him something and he would laugh and say, you know, it's something that requires really a book to answer. But um, he very uh, gallantly and uh, with good humor um, entertained my questions. And I think I, I, I learned a lot from this interview. You will as well. Yeah, Trump did the uh, the town hall on CNN last night. Um, I was not watching that because I watched the Knicks uh, win against the Miami Heat, Game Five, pivotal Game Five. Much more important than anything you know Trump did. Um, it's obviously horrible that CNN put this guy on the air. It's CNN has sucked for a long time though. I mean, are we still? I I, I don't get when people are you know go online and complain about this like it's new. Like CNN has sucked since at least 2015, right? I mean, you know, they do some good stuff, but mostly they put on and they both sides and they fucking help normalize this guy. Without CNN, there's no Donald Trump. We didn't have him as president in 2016. So it should be no surprise that they're platforming him now. And, you know, shame on them. Shame on this Chris Licht guy, who's now the the new fellow in charge over there. Uh, wonder whose ass he licked to get that job. Um this is just a, an abomination of journalism, of uh, democracy, all of it. it. It's just disgusting. I didn't watch any of it. I'm not going to watch any of it. I don't care. I'm sick of listening to this asshole. And, you know, look, you can throw poll numbers at me. You can say this, that, or the other. I think most people in America are fucking sick of this guy, and they don't want him around. You know, they don't want him around. That, that's it. It's, it. it's simple as that. I don't think he's going to pick up votes um, especially with the whirlwind of legal shit that's unleashed on, upon him um, in the year to come. I, I just think he's he's such a fucking loser in every sense of the word. So I'm not really afraid of him. 
you know, it's ridiculous that they gave him a platform, though, and I really wish they had not. Um, somebody else said this, and I can't. It might have been Steve Martin. I think that was, it was his tweet. He's not. He's not the nominee. He's not even the front runner right now. He's just the guy that just got like you know has to pay five million bucks because um, a jury found that yes, he did indeed uh, sexually assault uh, E. Jean Carroll. Like he's a fucking sexual assailant and he's a rapist and that's what he is. He's a fucking criminal. Shame on CNN for having this jerk on their TV screens. Just awful. I hope that the I hope that the ratings sucked. I hope that it sucked. And um, you know, if you're a journalist working there on TV. I don't know. I know people need their jobs and everything, but really, I mean, if, if eight people there just stood up and refused to go on the air last night, that would have sent a huge message. Of course they didn't because they're cowards. Um, and that's it. Also, shout out to Peter Baker of the New York Times for uh, defending Caitlin Collins. Just, just yet another shit take from that guy. Shit take. They should call him Shit Take Baker. That should be his nickname going forward. Anyway, uh, I got nothing else. This is a great interview. I want to get right to it. Without further ado, we will be right back with John Fowler. Now look at them grifters. That's the way to do it. Funnel cash through five or one C3. Ginny and Clarence, look at how they do it. Get some money from Leo Harlan's gifts tax. John Fowler, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Thanks, Greg. I'm uh, thrilled to have a chat with you. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you. You have a new project called International Intrigue, which we're going to talk about. And uh, I hadn't heard about it. I got I got turned on to it. And um, it's great so far. I signed up for the mailing list. I get these, these periodic updates. And it basically gives you a snapshot of stuff happening all around the world politically. But... Um, in a way that is not boring. So I want to talk about that um, in a second. But first, talk about your experience a little bit. Um, you know, you're you're from Australia. You're living yeah. now in the United States. You're in Chicago. Um, you were a diplomat. How did you get into this line? Or t- tell us a, bit, a little bit about your career up to this point. So I, yeah, as you say, I started off as a lawyer actually for my for my sins, but couldn't couldn't cop it <laughs> in the commercial world for very long, um, and ended up joining the Foreign Service. The Australian Foreign Service um, as a as a lawyer ended up there for about almost a decade and spent about four years in China as a uh, with a posting in Beijing and Shanghai. So that was kind of my diplomatic experience on on the ground in China from 2015 to 2019, which was a, a fascinating time to be there. Lots of change, and then I kind of just wanted to do something else. So I left and uh, did a did an MBA over in London during COVID, which was a whole different experience, and then uh, ended up founding 
a media company, as you mentioned, International Intrigue is our, our flagship newsletter. But the idea behind founding the company is just noticing that there was a huge gap in people's understanding of how the world worked, um, particularly amongst folks who don't you know, spend their life thinking about international politics, but that more and more people need to understand this stuff because the world's changing so quickly. It's becoming more unstable, more volatile. So yeah, that kind of got me to here. Yeah, I think it, I think it's it's really good, and you know, I, I try to do that on on my podcast here because um, I have an interest in in international affairs, obviously, and I try to have people on from different countries to kind of hit me to things that are going on, and you know, wherever Ukraine, obviously, in Syria, in the UK, sometimes there's been a yeah. lot of weird tumult in in, in England. Um, they have a new king now, apparently. I'm told. <laughs> so uh, I saw. <laughs> um, so, do you speak Chinese? Do you speak Mandarin? Or are you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, fluent in that. I mean, that that's with big thanks to the Australian government who spent a lot of money to teach me before I went over there. So, <laughs> okay, that's a, yeah. Um, wow, that's pretty good. That's a that's a marketable skill in this in this day and age. I have to say. Yeah. Um, so, who who are your partners in in the uh, in the media venture here? Talk about about that a little bit. Yeah. So, my co-founder is also a former Australian diplomat. She was posted to Israel and to Hong Kong, um, and then went on to Harvard because she's smarter than me. <laughs> um, and she's based in DC at the moment. So we we both started at, at you know at the same time and kind of just said this is something that needs to be done. We've since brought on um, another former colleague as kind of like the managing editor. Um and he kind of oversees the content um and, and chooses our stories and is it, it, I think one of the biggest things we do each day is kind of comb through, you know, six, seven hundred sources every day. And he kind of responds he's responsible for the the strategy behind what we choose to cover. Um yeah and, and we've been going for about 18 months now. So it's it's been exciting. Yeah. Like I said, I, I it's really good. And I, you know, I get a lot of Thank things you. in my inbox and I roll my eye and I, and I've been reading it because I think it's, it's done really well. Like you have these little snapshots into various countries and then you have the flags. There's a lot of emoji work going on here, which is, <laughs> it, it's a very good use of emoji. I think, you know, you'll have the flag of a country and I'm a geek. So when I was like a little kid, I memorized what all the flags were. Right. So I, I could be like, Oh, that's what you call it. You know? And then you'll talk about, you know, what's going on with an election in, you know, Azerbaijan or something. Not, there's no elections in Azerbaijan. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever international thing is going on in the country at that moment that might merit mention um, on the world stage. And then What's interesting is you also kind of you'll present it from different angles. Like this is how a story is being reported in the local press and versus the international press and stuff like that, which also is fascinating because it gives you some insight into, you know, how these things, these events are being perceived in reality and then, you know, by the various governments that are trying to spin it to their to suit their aims. But it's done in a, in a it's not like you know, you're leafing through the the economist or something like it's 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 succinct. You can get it quickly and, you know, with some humor and flair. So I I, I think it's really good. That's very kind of you. And I'm glad you mentioned The Economist because that's what we're trying to sort of update The Economist for yeah. the 21st century is so you don't fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, there's a reason why The Economist is always in the old doctor's offices. Right? Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> so, okay. I want to talk to you about China a lot because I've done very little. I know very little about China. Um and I, but I also want to talk first about Australia because I also my my ignorance of Australian politics is is borderline shameful um, for a fantastic ally that 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 we've had. Um, so I just want to I want you to walk me through some things that are going on there in the last couple of years and some of the people in the news and just uh, tell us who they are and stuff like that. So uh, first of all, Alexander Downer, right, mm. international hero. Uh, Australian diplomat who who fatefully went went for drinks with George Papadopoulos yeah. um, and set the entire FBI investigation into Trump in motion. Uh, his was the martini that launched a thousand ships or something like that, right? So how is he perceived in Australia? Do people like laud him as a hero or nobody cares? Like, it's yeah, it's funny. That's like the very very. Well, it's the only kind of example I can think of to hand where diplomats actually achieved something over martinis like everyone thinks we do. <laughs> um, it's a tough question. Alexander Downer was also the foreign minister of Australia for, I think, almost a decade um, from about the late 90s to 2007. Um, I He was part of John Howard's um, you know, centre-right government that were seen as pretty conservative in Australia and, and around for a long time. So, you know, he's got this one element of being a diplomat. He was the ambassador London. And I think people thought he did a good job. And then he obviously hit the news, um, as you mentioned, but he also as a foreign minister was pretty political. So, you know, I think a lot of the views in Australia about him would 
depend on your political views. Okay. I think my, my view is he's kind of, he did a pretty good job. Like he's pretty competent, you know? Okay. Okay. That's good. Cause yeah. I'm like, I, that guy, at least as far as the Trump story is concerned, you know, he gets the, he gets the gold star in our book. Um, right. So now you've had a new prime minister for about a year. His name is yeah. uh, Anthony Albanese. Am I saying it right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's from the labor party and he, it's the first um, new political party that's come in in something like seven, seven and a half years. Before that, you had Scott Morrison and then before him, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who are both of the Liberal Party. So mm-hmm. um, what I want to know is a little bit about each of these guys, uh, where they rank on the whole fascism scale, because I've, I've heard <laughs> rumblings from people in Australia that maybe I think maybe Morrison in particular was a little bit maybe not so great, but maybe I'm, I might be totally wrong. Um, what they're known for there and abroad, and uh, what's the difference between liberal and labor? Isn't that like the yeah. same thing? Okay. Yeah, I know. Our, our political parties really need a, a rebrand, don't they? So the liberal yeah. party is big L liberal party is kind of our right wing, center right wing party. Um, okay. I, I think it's for American audiences, it's kind of useful to contextualize how far right wing they are. I think generally we see our parties as much more centrist than, say, the Democrats and the Republicans would be here. We have things like compulsory voting, which just tend to, you know, moderate the crazy in the parties a little bit. Um, so the liberals are kind of like, I would say, more center. I mean, there'd be people in Australia listening to me screaming at me saying, no, they're fascists, like, at, you know, super right wing. But I feel like they're center right. Um, so they came to power after the Labor Party was in power for about six years in 2000 and let's say 13, it was around then. Three successive prime ministers, as you mentioned, that went Tony Abbott, who is pretty Christian, pretty fundamentalist, probably the most conservative of the, of the lot. He was replaced by Malcolm Turnbull, who you mentioned, and he was probably the most centrist of the lot. He kind of was pretty famous for being um, a big advocate of climate change, kind of uh, positioning Australia to do things, more things on climate change. Um, he was the one who presided over Australia legalizing gay marriage. Um, so he, he was seen as kind of like a, you know, a fiscal conservative, but a social liberal ish kind of guy. Okay. Uh, and then he was replaced by Scott Morrison, who I think your sources in Australia might be pretty, pretty accurate. He was seen as kind of, um, well, actually he did this thing, which is very inside baseball, but he, during the pandemic in Australia, he secretly appointed himself the head of a lot of these, of, of our ministries. So our, our departments, um, as like a co-head of them. So they all had, you know, secretaries of, the departments, the leaders of the departments and the ministers in charge of the departments, but he just put himself next to them to make sure that he made all the decisions without telling anybody. So that's kind of a a big political scandal in Australia. So I think you're right about saying he was, you know, not fascist, but But, in that direction. But yeah, but not not fascist, fascist, but (laughs) fascist with with an accent or something. Yeah, Uh, admiring them. (laughs) So what's the general vibe? The compulsory voting is great. I wish we had that here. Here in the United States, of course, we want we want as few people to vote as possible. Uh, That seems to be the the you know the prevailing sentiment from from DC, certainly from the the Supreme Court, which is unfortunate. But uh, when did when did that happen? When did that happen? When did that start? I mean, I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I think it's been the way since Federation in 1901. I think I'm almost certain. So it's okay, um, but it's not recent. This is a long. No, no, thing. no. It's yeah. yeah, and I think it's the best thing about our politics, frankly, because it's as I always say to people: um, no one who doesn't really care about politics walks into a voting booth and votes for the craziest person on the ballot. You kind of just go, ah, they seem fine. They seem thing. You know, things will go the same. So you get all those people who don't vote in America being forced to vote in Australia. It would be interesting if that happened here, because I fear that <laughs> some significant percentage of the Americans are the people that would want the crazy. Right, right. It would be an interesting experiment. But again, that's what democracy is all about. And we need to know. I think everybody has to have their their voice and their vote. Um, what are the biggest challenges like in Australia now politically, like, like in general in the country? Obviously, in the United States, it's gun violence and mm-hmm. stuff like that, uh, you know, and and this creeping fascism taking over in the states and all this stuff. What's going on in Australia now that people maybe should know about here? Yeah, I mean, domestically, I think there's still a lot of conjecture over our energy mix. I think we've been too slow to move towards renewables. Um, you know, that uh, I think a significant portion of politicians do very well campaigning on thing, on green energy and like stopping coal. So that's always a big issue. And it's something that Australia will always be dealing with because we're such a big country with such 
energy resources that it's always tempting to just kind of keep keep going with the fossil fuels. Um, that's a big one. I think cost of living at the moment, obviously everywhere inflation's biting, but you know, that's that's pretty standard. We don't have any, I mean, touch wood, we don't have any issues like healthcare or gun violence because, you know, universal healthcare and, and no guns kind of helps. Um, I, I, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I think the biggest thing that that I see in Australian politics right now and watching from America is our place in the world. I don't think that Australia really is comfortable right now with how our region is shaping up. You know, China's obviously a big question for us. Um, the Pacific Island relationships are forefront amongst a lot of people's people's kind of political consciousnesses. Um, yeah, I would say, and oh, the other thing that that's big in the news at the moment in Australia is there's this thing called the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Um, there's a, a a fairly big debate going on about enshrining. It's complicated, but basically enshrining an acknowledgement that Australians, white Australians, weren't the first people in Australia, and letting Indigenous Australians have uh, a mechanism to kind of have an input into Parliament. So that's that's kind of a big thing on on the agenda at the moment as well. Yeah, that that's good. That's it's good that they would do that. Um, so yeah. what, what's the deal between Australia and New Zealand? Is it like, are you guys like tight? Is it like a friendly can't rivalry? What's no, that? I'm kidding. I said, can't stand them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I think we're very close. I mean, it's, there's a lot of commonalities, right? Like a lot of New Zealanders come and work in Australia. A lot of Australians go to New Zealand. It's very similar systems. New Zealanders might say that they're more socially progressive and a little bit more you know, modern than Australians. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very much like the US and Canada, I would say. Differences-ish, but close friends. Yeah. Also, New Zealand has hobbits, apparently, which is, yeah. you know, you guys don't, you don't have that. So No, we don't have hobbits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was wondering if it's like, in you know, the scene in Borat where where he's, you know, he's from Kazakhstan and he drives by the Uzbek embassy and he's like, fuck you, Uzbekistan. Exactly. I wondered if it was... I mean, I think I think if you if you uh, filmed Sydney late at night, you might see some drunk Australians doing the same thing to the New Zealand embassy. <laughs> um, okay, one last Australia question: um, mm. Rupert Murdoch, Australian. Mm. Mm, uh, sorry. Will you take him back? Uh, no, he's all yours. <laughs> he's all yours. Uh, <laughs> Thought I would try. No. Had to, yeah. had to try. Had exactly. To try. I mean, I I mean, it sounds a bit morbid to say, but he probably won't be around for all that much longer. The actuarial tables are what they are, you know. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I want to talk. Ex- I want to talk about China extensively since you were there for so long. And again, my ignorance about China is is embarrassing. Um, before we do, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with John Fowler. Okay, we're back with John Fowler, international intrigue. The questions I have are probably remedial and easy for you. Um, but for me, I just want to make sure that I understand exactly what's happening with you know, that part of the world. Obviously, because of the proximity to China, Australia is much more locked in and has more at stake, I think, in the, um, the, the diplomatic relations between those two countries. But first, okay, so China is ostensibly communist, but this isn't like some Marxist paradise. It's basically a dictatorship, I think. What's going on there? How would you characterize the government as it actually is right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, it's a huge question. I <laughs> think what you've said is roughly right. It's certainly not a communist country in in the way that I guess you kind of learn communism in the, in the school textbooks. Um, so yeah, it's a dictatorship if a dictatorship kind of is, you know, ruled by one or a couple of people without much, you know, oversight from the people. So it is a dictatorship. I think it's more complex than that. I, in my brain, I don't know about yours, but in my brain, a dictatorship kind of brings to mind, you know, despots kind of ruling from military headquarters with not a lot of support, but just guns. And that's certainly not what China is like. They've got a very kind of devolved system of government, you know, um, a very rigid structure, you know, courts, it, it all works. And it's not working because, you know, Xi Jinping is is holding a gun to people's heads, but also he's the only one who can make decisions. And I think a lot of Chinese officials won't do anything until he says you can do it. So that sounds like a dictatorship, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, in terms of like, it, it's not a Marxist paradise. It's funny because... 
one of the things that Xi Jinping has really been big on since he kind of came back to power is reestablishing the Marxism idea into Chinese political life. It, it, it you know, they still have, I, I lived in Shanghai for three years and, you know, I lived on this street where it was just Gucci, Hermes, Fendi, you know, Starbucks. So it's not kind of that idea of the USSR where they can't get a loaf of bread, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly Marxist ideas of kind of um, the state should be absolutely in control of ab like everything. Uh, there's no such thing as kind of like leaving the private sector alone. So you know, those are kind of Marxist ideas, right? Do you think those ideas are popular among the people there? Not that anybody could ever say the opposite, but what's what was your sense? I do actually. I mean, I think it's it's really hard to know because there's obviously no free media and there's the censorship is wild. I remember with our staff in in the consulate in Shanghai, you you could type words into WeChat and they would disappear as soon as you hit send. Like in front of your face, it would just be like you never sent it. So like they can real time censor political words, um, and the news is all controlled by the Chinese obviously the government. So it's hard to get a sense of what everyday Chinese people really think. But I would say, you know, China's a massively different place to what it was in the 70s and 80s and even 90s. It's developed hugely. People in general live much, much better lives than they used to. Um, it's getting richer and richer. People are getting more jobs. So I, it's, it's, yeah, it's hard to make sweeping statements. But I, would, I, would, I guess what I would say is I think there's a temptation in the West to think, oh, well, it's a dictatorship and it's not free. Therefore, the Chinese people must be struggling against the yoke of the government. I think en masse, that's probably not how they see it okay yeah that's what i was getting at because it does seem it's it historically it's an interesting place because unlike you know europe for example china has been pretty much united for thousands of years i mean you know it was united very early on in its history and kind of has remained such under various you know different different ruling uh parties and stuff like that different dynasties whether it's han or song or whatever but right um so it does have this long history of of union which I think, you know, most yeah. places just don't have that. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, territorially, it's kind of broken up and been put back together and changed. But you're right. I think there's this sense of like continuity and identity of what it means to be Han Chinese. So, yeah. And and then they've had these interregnums of like foreign interference, you know, the Opium Wars and the British mm -hmm. came along and they don't see that as kind of um, disrupting China. They see that as like an interference in their, in their in, as you say, their long, long continued history. I, I don't know. I think if you had a historian on the podcast, they might kind of dispute it a bit more than I'm able to, but that's certainly how they see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, it's not a, a straight line, but I think, no. you know, in general, like, you know, since Rome fell, Europe basically wasn't united right. you know, for, for a long, long period of time. And even that was very tenuous and not everywhere and like that. Definitely. So that's all that I mean. Let, let, let's talk about Xi for a while. So what, what has changed under his rule in general and, and, basically since COVID, since the pandemic, um, and where is it headed, do you think, in terms of him? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so I'll take post-COVID second, because you kind of, so she, she came to power in 2012, and for the first five years or so, he said about doing the things you do if you have the end goal being kind of total control of the government. It wasn't clear to people who watched China for the first five years which way he'd go. But now with hindsight, it's very clear. He did things like, you know, huge anti-corruption drives, which were both necessary to get rid of corruption, but also very useful to get rid of his rivals. Mm -hmm. um, and so by the time 2017 came along, he also restructured the military, which was corrupt and kind of had its own fiefdoms and little, I wouldn't say quite warlords, but people who were almost untouchable within the military. And he, he unified all of that really under the under the party structure that, um, that he leads. And since 2017, he's been very assertive and very aggressive about how he uses that. So, you know, as I said before, there's really no dissent that we're able to kind of see, um, and certainly none that creeps into public uh, to what he says. He uses the military much more effectively than his predecessors. He's obviously, his foreign policy has become far more assertive. So under Xi, it's kind of become, there's this sense that China's kind of really come back under the Communist Party Whereas before it might have been seen to kind of communist party was leading the country, but there was the private sector that was pretty independent and there was a military. Now it's the party runs everything. Um, and, and I think that's only increased since COVID. Uh, COVID was a, a real, you know, their zero COVID policy was, I think, from an outside perspective, a real disaster in terms of the things that we would measure it by, by quality of life, um, you know, economic results. But in China, I think it's consolidated 
um, Communist Party power. Uh, and I think it has been seen as, a, well, they're painting it as a triumph because according to them, we'll never know, but fewer people died and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, um, it's, it's it's difficult to say with any certainty, but that's kind of the, the broad stro- uh, brush strokes. Thank you. That that's yeah, that that's helpful. Um, I if if the zero policy was so strict and people yeah. stayed at home, I mean, I'm sure they're right that fewer people died. I mean, I I don't I don't doubt that. If if they really stuck with that policy, I mean, if you don't leave your house, you're not going to get COVID. I mean, it, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Not it's not no way to live for three years, but you know, uh, no, people seem to be going crazy a little bit. Um, so talk about him a little bit as a person because. As I understand it, he has kind of an unusual backstory. How did he find himself in charge of all this stuff? Uh, did he rise to the ranks, or you know, talk a little bit about him. Yeah, he's a really he's a really interesting guy. I, if any of your listeners are interested in kind of deep diving on him, the, the Economist put out a fantastic eight or nine part series podcast uh, about a year ago called um, I think it's called The Prince, uh, and it was basically an episode investigating each part of his life. But the the sort of very, very quick version of that is he's the son of a very famous son of the Chinese revolution. So um, a guy who was right-hand, not quite right-hand man to Mao, but in that kind of stratosphere, you know, real a real leader within the, within the Communist Party. Uh, and then his dad got sent down in the Cultural Revolution. So he got purged and sent to a labor camp. And she was, I guess, like in his teens when that happened. Um, so had he experienced what it was like to be kind of purged from the Communist Party uh, in China, which I think, uh, who knows how that affects someone's psyche, but it has to be pretty traumatic, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he, he has since said that that experience kind of really shaped how he sees the party's role in China to kind of never forget the small people in the villages, you know, propaganda is a hell of a thing. Right. But um, he, uh, he then sort of went back to to Beijing and and took on a couple of high profile roles that you have to think he wouldn't have gotten except for his father. And then he really begins this very classic move, as you said, move from the ranks. He was a low ranking party official in a bunch of different provinces in China and he, which culminated in him being the chief official in Shanghai in 2007, before he moved to Beijing, keeps going up, you know, and then gets appointed as um, general secretary in 2012. But it was like, a, it was the culmination of what I think it's fair to say was a 30 year career of being like a really loyal communist party official, gradually getting promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted. Okay. So, but on some level, there must have been some merit to it. Like, if he wasn't good at these various places, they, you know, ostensibly yeah. could have been like, "Yeah, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna keep promoting you." What yeah. one imagines? I don't. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think he's he presided over some provinces that have done pretty well economically, Fujian and and Zhejiang, which are in near Shanghai in the eastern coast of China, which is you know a prosperous area. Um, he seems to have avoided any major corruption scandals, which that might just be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he because he's in charge now, he wasn't corrupt, right? right um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he was he's vaguely, I mean, not sorry, vaguely. He's he's generally seen as as competent and good at his job. Okay. Um, and what's the deal with the? You always hear about um, you know, sort of the oppression of, of the Uyghurs and um, you know, the human rights violations. So I, I talk, talk about that a little. What's 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 the thinking there? What why are they doing that? What what's happening and why are they doing it? I mean, again, such 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 huge questions. I think the again, the short answer is that Western China is hugely underdeveloped. Um, it is very, very. I mean, it's not really China. I mean, I'll probably get cancelled for saying that, right? But it, these people are have a lot more in common with Turks and and Central Asian Muslims than they do with Han Chinese people from the eastern seaboard of China. So there's this sense that they don't fit together. Um, in, in, you know, and unlike. America or Australia or the UK, multiculturalism is a thing that doesn't really fly in China. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they don't accept dissent. They don't. They don't really. I mean, in Xinjiang, it's it's very widely reported that they don't accept. They don't let the, the Uyghur Muslims practice their culture, their you know their religion. They're, they're sent to those re-education camps to basically sing Chinese songs. It's it's like kind of the extermination of the the Muslim Uyghur cultural identity because. They see that area, I think, as a real risk for instability, um, and they don't want that instability to leak out into the rest of China. Um, they've seen what happened in in the Middle East uh, to Europe with migrants kind of flooding into to Europe after the after the Iraq wars, and then 
the spate of terrorism and ISIS and all that kind of stuff, that's not going to happen in China. They're not going to let it happen. And, you know, if reports are are to be believed, which I personally think they absolutely should be, what's going on there is a mass internment of a of a of a you know not quite a race but a, certainly like a a people's cultural identity it's, it's really horrific yeah and yeah. forced labor as well and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah um thank you for answering i know these are these are all complicated questions yeah demand more than a few minutes but i i feel like we do need to to hit all the topics just in a general Absolutely. sense and if people want to learn more obviously they can they can go read and learn more um and Hong Kong, what's going on with Hong Kong now? Because for a while, you know, the, the British famously sort of leased Hong Kong for 100 mm. years, and then that, that came up, and then it was sort of capitalist for a while. And it was like almost, I thought of it almost as an airlock between, you know, the West and and communist, quote unquote, China. But now it seems to have been taken over. What, what's the situation in Hong Kong now? That's a, that's a great description. I haven't I haven't heard it being called an airlock before, but that's a, that's a really good way of describing it. And I think it's exactly what it was, right? Um, particularly yeah. after the handover back in uh, 90, it was 97. 97, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it was a place where you could do business with China and you could, you know, build relationships with China without being exposed to the Chinese legal system and the Chinese government and politics. But that is no longer the case. Um, starting a couple of years ago, they the Chinese government has, like Beijing I'm talking about, has slowly and incrementally Forced the Chinese government, uh, the the Hong Kong government, uh, to pass laws that give Beijing a lot more oversight, um, that give the right for Beijing to station troops there permanently and have a role in policing the uh, the islands. And you know, I think fundamentally, the sort of <laughs> the the headline is that Hong Kong is really just now part of China. That there are a lot of bits of window dressing that folks will tell you um, that it's not part of China, that there's still these little bits of independence sort of remaining. And perhaps that's true, but perhaps it's true for companies and for people who are living there already. Um, You know, I think China probably isn't overly keen to to meddle with things that are working fine enough. Yeah. yeah. If if you were looking to set up a business or move your bank or move your family there, you you really should think of of it as mainland China now, which is, I know, again, speaking only in my personal capacity, I think it's, um, I think it's sad. It's a, it was a vibrant, wonderful city. And I think a lot of that's going to be lost as, as the kind of Beijing exerts its cultural and, and political power over it. Yeah. It's a, the downer to have to, you know, to, to lose uh, rights, I think is really, is really tough to, to, you know, to feel and that. They did- yeah, they didn't go without a fight though. It's it's they're amazingly brave folks there who were marching on the streets um, over the last couple of years. I mean, I think they have lost that war or that battle. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a downer when you when you see people losing the right to speak freely and 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 write freely. Yeah, no, it's uh, and I don't mean to. I'm saying God, it's such a like it's a like it's a bummer. Oh my God, it's raining outside. I don't want. I don't mean to minimize it here no. uh, talking, but you know, this is obviously people's lives at stake, and it's you know, it's sad. But um, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Uh, I mean, I, I, the other, very briefly, I think the other thing that bears mentioning with this stuff, though, is that none of this gets around the fact that, like, Hong Kong was part of China, right? Like, it, it, the, the Brits, it was a British colony. There's that whole colonialism angle, which isn't great either. So yeah. even though I'm kind of, like, very sad that Hong Kong won't be the Hong Kong that I knew as I, I kind of grew up traveling there and I, I spent a lot of time there, there is a sense also that what was ex- what existed was also not great because of the, the imperialism yeah. of the British Empire. It's such a complicated issue, right? So many thoughts. Yeah. Is, is, it's the same thing with Macau? Is that the same? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Macau, yeah. It's, it's not as politically kind of sort of powder keggy to, 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 yeah. to use a phrase. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, similar. It was a Portuguese colony and and, right. and now is mostly Chinese. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Trump's tariff. I want to talk about that for a minute. Um I think we all know that tariffs are stupid and we all know that Trump likes them because, you know, stupid is as stupid does. Um, what effect did Trump's trade policies have on China um, <laughs> and were they at all good? Um, what effect did they have? I don't think they had much of a practical effect, honestly, if we're talking about just what Trump has done, because I think in many ways Biden has extended and revised that idea and made it much more. Um, it, it bites a lot more under 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 Biden. I think Trump was a lot of you'll be shocked to know a lot of um, rhetoric and not a lot of follow through. No um, <laughs> there were there were certainly there were certainly things he did do. Um, 
I think pulling out of the TP, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership for Trade, yeah. which was that trade, yeah, that trade grouping in, in the Pacific. I think that kind of probably had the most effect on the region unintentionally. It was yeah, a bit of a shot. I think I think you guys shot yourselves in the foot a little bit on that one. Yeah, that's um, dumb. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, that that would be my view. <laughs> um, I think, I think on the effect, uh, the effect on China is really it was more political. It was more geopolitical. I think it unfortunately reinforced a lot of the um, prior thinking that the Chinese leadership might have had about the U.S. Like the, the the current Chinese leadership, I think is really animated by this idea that the U.S. wants to keep China down and to keep it under the foot, and that you know it it, it wants this dynamic of America rules the world and China's subservient and to the extent that trump came out and kind of ran his mouth and and started unilaterally at that point putting tariffs on this and threatening more more things i think that that was seen in beijing as like ha told you so americans can't be trusted and this is what they do when they get a chance they're threatened by our rise and look how they react so i think the biggest lasting legacy of it is just that political kind of um result yeah, that's what I thought. It doesn't help that he ran around blaming China for the pandemic, you know? Um, no, you- but I think the other thing too is that the China's China's definitely changed. And, and you know, some of the thinking before Trump and before 2017, when Xi Jinping got a second term, um, was a little bit naive, right? That, that China would just come and play nicely in this liberalized world and like everyone's going to be happy and maybe one day they'll become a democracy. I think that was a bit naive too. So um, in a way, and again, this is Trump, this is not how you do geopolitics and diplomacy. You don't run your mouth randomly and and send everyone running for the fire hydrants. Um, but in a sense, he was the first American politician to really change the view of China to be like, okay, listen, they're rising, they're huge, they're going to be powerful, and they don't want to play by our rules. So we need to we need to address this. Now he addressed it in a way that I think was really bad, but he had he was the first one to change that mentality, if you get my point. Yeah, yeah. And and they they weaponize it. They meaning the MAGA Republicans. They, you know, they're always accusing Biden of being like CCP communist, you know, they like mm-hmm. to throw that term around. They're Chinese communists, blah, 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 blah. Um, Lauren Boebert and people like that are are forever screaming about that, even though they have socialism no fucking idea what it means. Uh <laughs> it's socialism, communism, whatever it is. Um I my thinking is, I mean, I I don't know, like if you just look at it economically, we do so much trade with China and we owe them so much money. Mm. How can we possibly, I mean, be in any sort of great war there there or for even for that matter, the perception that you just described as perhaps a Chinese one of us trying to put them down. How can we put down the people that are bankrolling us? You know, because the, the, that's that's how it is. There's a you know an awful lot of of debt to China. A lot of our goods come from China, so it really is in that sense. Whether however we may feel about the government and this and that, the the economic back and forth is pretty profound and enormous. So anything that they do to fuck that up is going to hurt them as well. I would think, but I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm oversimplifying it. I'm sure. What do you think? Uh- yeah, no, I I don't think you are. I think that's I think that's true. I mean, if two economies and and really the global economies are so intertwined, any I mean, if you're talking about like a hot war, that would obviously destroy economies and a lot more. Yeah. Um, but I think there are I think you're right. There's a lot there's a sense that if you continue this path or this spiral down in the relationship that um that both economies will be hurt, maybe not equally, but they'll both suffer. It's a it's a lose lose kind of idea. Yeah. But also, you're taking off the guardrails to that hot war, as you mentioned. Um. You know, it, I don't think there's a real risk of kind of you know China invading America or vice versa. But it just makes it just makes things like accidents and and miscommunications and and scuffles, for want of a better word, it makes that stuff more likely if you're not doing business because you don't have businessmen chatting. You don't have uh, you know, supply chains at risk for both countries. You know, it it, it it's not a good thing if if the economies continue to, to sort of decouple. Yeah, no, I I agree, and it goes it goes with the the trade stuff because China has spent a lot of uh, has invested a lot of resources, economic and and diplomatic in this new Silk Road initiative, mm. which is uh, you know they, the old Silk Road, of course, was the overland trade between like Rome and 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 China that was you know, a thousand years ago, whatever, more than that. Uh, but now this new thing, it's it's more sea-based. And, um, 
you know, they they try to just have influence, especially like in, in places like Africa and the Middle East, where lots of people are trading with them. What's what's the scuttlebutt on on the new Silk Road initiative? How's that going there? Is that a thing still? Or I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely a thing. I, you know, you're talking about the old Silk Road there. I think uh, an interesting fact there is that Chinese always used to tell me when I was in China that pasta, Italian pasta, was actually taken back to Italy by Marco Polo and yeah. that they invented pasta. And I, you know, I kind of believe it. It's basically a noodle, right? It's lo mein. It's the same <laughs> exactly. <damn> thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, so yeah, the, I mean, the new Belt and Road Initiative is, yeah, it's still a massive thing. Um, China's poured, I mean, I, I don't even know how much, but, you know, probably up to about a trillion bucks now, I reckon, into, into as you say, um, loans to countries. I think it's up to about 150 countries now have Belt and Road Initiative projects in them. It's uh, yeah, it's huge. I think, I think it's kind of uh, again in the media it gets portrayed as a very single issue kind of thing, i.e., trap countries in debt so then it become they become vassal states to China. Um, I think that's one part of it, but I think actually that's a narrative that's being pushed by India a lot. India is really worried that um, you know Pakistan particularly is is beholden to China now because of its huge debt load to China. Um, but you know it's all the Belt and Road Initiative is also about the idea that they can get energy supplies and trade overland from Central Asia because then the US military can't meddle. It's much harder for the US to break up energy supplies um, if they're not coming in by sea. It's the idea, I think, that the Chinese economy needs to restructure itself in a huge way over the next 10 years because it's going from it's going from a really underdeveloped country to, it hopes, a rich country. And that's a really difficult transition to make if you don't have a really diversified kind of economy. They, they want to move into more stuff that that we in the West do, you know, services, technology, these high value added things. Um, so the BRI is part of that as well. But I think it's also true to say that, you know, when it goes to Djibouti or goes to African countries and funds these enormous projects on pretty, pretty stiff terms, right? Like these interest rates they're giving are worse than IMF rates. They're almost commercial loans. Um, okay. So, so then countries can't get saddled with debt and can't pay it back. And then China can go in and be like, okay, well, let's have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. We've got to foreclose like on shark. this thing that we built. Ex yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, interesting. Okay. So Taiwan. Mm. The China Taiwan situation, um, which is one state, it's it. I, I none of it makes sense. It's it makes as much sense as the Holy Trinity and that concept where there's two, but there's three. And the so <laughs> explain a little bit about what actually is uh, is going on there. I mean, just historically, Taiwan, the island off the coast of mainland China, where basically Mao ran all the, the former nationalists and they set up shop there and, and the communists took over mainland China in what, 49, whatever year that was. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been separate ever since. But the, the perception is that um, China is China and Taiwan is part of China. Um, but it's not, but it is. So mm -hmm. what's what's going on there? What's the deal? I mean, it's so complicated, but you've, you've laid out the history perfectly. It's, it's, they chased all the nationalists to that island and then it was kind of like unfinished business, right? They were like, we'll, we'll come for you later. We'll finish the revolution and we'll finish the unification of China later. And that's kind of been, you know, 80 years um, or 70, 75. Yeah. Um, to, to, I mean, it's interesting too, the Taiwanese government in exile, what they call the Republic of China. They they say the rest of the mainland China is actually part of Taiwan, and right. they are the rightful government. So it's it's not just it's not just one side. Um, so I guess now I'm not going to get the year right, but it, it's sort of like since the early '90s, the rest of the world has kind of, might even be before that actually, but it's it, the rest of the world has kind of agreed to acknowledge this idea of. Taiwan will be will rule itself, will do its own thing, and be independent in all but name. And we will just pretend that China, you know, it, it's, it doesn't have to give up its claim to, to Taiwan, but we'll just pretend that, you know, all of that can exist peacefully and we will just hopefully not talk about it. You know, the, the, the broader context was, you know, the, the cold war was over and I don't think anyone had a real appetite for new ideological battles um, anywhere else. Uh, Chi China will, China's lockstep and always has been that Taiwan is part of China. And, and like, it's really important, I think, for people to understand that no matter what happens, the Communist Party's legitimacy almost now rests on the goal of reuniting Taiwan as part of the mainland of China. Um, so while this system, I think, which they, they you know, they officially call it um, 
I, I, it's a, the one China policy. I think you had yeah, in Hong Kong, yeah. you had one country, two systems, and in Taiwan, you've got part of part of China, but not. Yeah, it's it's better not to get too too deep into it; it'll blow your brain. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, and that's the situation is that that they they want it back and they will get it by any means. They would like it to be peaceful. Obviously, they don't want to have to go to war. Um, but yeah. See now the issue that that raises now in Crimea with Putin is that. Uh, we now have a, a, par- a, a an example of a rogue nation, meaning Russia, that has invaded um, a sovereign nation, that's Ukraine. Mm. In 2014, uh, they took Crimea, and n- pretty much nothing happened. Mm. Um, you know, I know there were sanctions or whatever, but I think nobody wanted to go to war on the international stage, and that was that. They just let him let Putin do it, and hoped that he would be uh, appeased. And you know the Churchill line about about appeasement, right? As, yeah. Uh, I will say it for the benefit of anybody listening that, that doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, an appeaser is somebody who feeds the crocodile hoping that he will eat him last. Yes, exactly. So, um, and now he's he's invaded the rest of Ukraine with the, with the whole idea. And again, the we I think that the Western world, the democratic free world is pretty much, um, with the exception of people like Tucker Carlson, pro-Ukraine, pro-democracy, doesn't think Russia should be doing this, thinks Putin is, you know, Hitlerian in this in this move. But there's no war happening. There's people sending arms and and that's it. So, um, and Victor Rudd, who was, has been on my show now a couple of times, Ukraine expert, has been screaming about this for, for years now, since mm-hmm. 2014. The Chinese are looking at this and they're saying, okay, look at what the West has done. You know, uh, you have a, a country that invaded; they didn't do shit. So mm-hmm. I know that we are duty bound to protect Taiwan because of something that we signed in whatever year that was after the Second World War. My guess is that if China invaded Taiwan, the appetite for the U.S. going to war there to defend it would be not terribly high, and they probably know that in Beijing. Um, so, what do you think would happen if if they? W- w- is there any reality in which they would just invade under cover of night? And what would the West do to stop it, if anything? Yeah. I, so I think, I mean, again, all the big questions. I think to start <laughs> off with, I think the the U.S. isn't, I, I mean, you might might know more about this than I do. The U.S. has like the policy of strategic ambiguity around Taiwan, where they haven't especially said they will defend Taiwan. Okay. But they do provide weapons to Taiwan to defend itself. And it's an open question, like meant as a deterrent, like, oh, maybe we will come to defend it. So China, you, you better not. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the situation of the US with, with Taiwan. I You frame it in like the Crimea-Ukraine thing. I think it's really interesting because I think the lesson from 2014 to February 2020, what was it, 2022, yeah. was exactly as you framed it. Like they would have been looking at that going like, okay, if we just kind of manage to do it at a time when people are distracted or we do it in a way that doesn't seem super offensive to the West, we could just incrementally get away with this. I think China now is looking at Ukraine going, oh shit, like Russia bit off way more than it can chew. Europe and the US and some other countries probably weren't that kind of close in you know their coordination and now they are lockstep and they are funding the defense of a country which really if we're perfectly honest in real politic about it the US doesn't have any interests in Ukraine really other than stopping Russia doing what it wants. Yeah. Um so like I think China looks at that and goes like oh my god like that reaction no no one expected the West, or I'm using that term sort of loosely, but the West to be so united, so um, sustained and and put their money where their mouth was. So I think Beijing has probably looked, I think Beijing wishes Russia didn't do it to start off with (laughs) in in that sense. Um, And I think they look at it and go, okay, we need to be extra, extra, extra careful about Taiwan. Um, And and particularly when you look at the Russian army and how it's performed, I think they sit there and go, oh my God, like the the one catastrophe, like the one thing that Xi Jinping cannot let happen is a military invasion of Taiwan that fails. That That's potentially yeah. the end of the regime in China, potentially. So that's like the absolute zero. Um, and I think perhaps that they're looking at Ukraine going, okay, well, this is, this changes things. We either need to beef up our military. We need to do it. We need to take Taiwan, um, you know, politically undermine it like they undermined Hong Kong um, right. and undermined Tibet, uh, these places. I think 
as I said before, they're not going to give up on the goal. That would be a mistake to be like, we can deter them, you know, down the road for, for infinity. But yeah, it's, it, it, the, other, the other side of it though, of course, is that now that China gets, Russia is China's gas station. So they're pretty thrilled about that. And they'll feel empowered because they've just become overnight much more powerful because Russia is no longer a partner. It's a almost like a vassal state. So maybe, right. maybe, maybe they are silly enough and naive enough to think they can stroll on in there and, 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 win, and win a war. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Xi-Putin kind of pairing because uh, the power dynamic is is clearly, uh, you know, in favor of, of Beijing at this point. Mm. It, oh, big time. What, what, what's your take on those two as leaders and how they get along? I mean, do you think that that, that they like each other? Do you think it's just all for show or what? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really impossible to say how they feel personally. Um, I if I had to guess, I think I've read enough stuff over the last couple of years that it seems like they do have a pretty good relationship personally. I think yeah. she's been on the record as saying that Putin is his closest international leader friend. Um, but you know, you never, you never. Oh, know they're it. besties. That's so cute. It's sweet, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you you never really know though. Um, of course, right before right before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, they announced that they were no limit friends or no limits partnership friends um you know like literally weeks before russia invaded ukraine which must have seriously pissed off xi jinping in beijing i think but um i think the relationship's good um i think china now sees that it has all of the power and russia is completely subservient to it which you know china isn't a country that will not take advantage of that dynamic they will yeah, yeah, they will yeah. twist the knife eventually and, and also Greg, I mean, this is, these are two countries that, like, for most of the Cold War, did not get along, right? The Sino-Soviet right. split in the 1960s, despite what, like, I would have thought when I was first learning about all of this, you're like, oh, they must get along because they're the same system. And Mao was so influenced by by the by the Russian Revolution, they hated each other. So that there's this undercurrent of like, I don't know how deep that relationship is, but it works for now. Okay. No, oh, that's a good. That's a good answer. And Stalin was a dick. I mean, that's the thing. No, <laughs> fa- fa- famously. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody got along with him too well. You know, nah. he's kind of a dick. Uh, he really was. The, the, there's a Chairman Mao story where, um, after uh, shortly after the assassination of of John Kennedy, they asked him, "How do you think the world would be different if um, Khrushchev had been assassinated instead of Kennedy?" Hmm. And he stopped and paused and he said, I don't think Aristotle Onassis would have married Mrs. Khrushchev. That was his answer. It's <laughs> a great answer. <laughs> we could sit here all day and not come up with a better one, right? No, that's that's perfected. Move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So last question concerning China. What do you think, what is their big picture plan? Like what, what, what is the goal? What? You know, what are they trying to do and should we be afraid? Uh, well, that's, it, it, again, it's so difficult to know. I think, um, I, I, I mean, start with what they say, and that's kind of like a, a, a prosperous nation by the 100-year anniversary of, of the PRC founding. So that'll be, what, 2049. So mm-hmm. not not that long, 30 years, roughly, 25 years. Yeah. Um, so a moderately prosperous nation that I think is kind of globally respected and, and regionally influential is what they say. And it's this idea of, the Chinese dream that she always says, um, which sounds a lot like the American dream, right? Um, but it's kind of self, self-sufficiency. They don't want to be reliant on anybody. Um, they want to have a powerful military, all this kind of stuff. Um, I think, and to be clear, all of that stuff is what most countries would want in their position, like wealthy, big population. I don't think those things are things to be afraid of in a vacuum because that's what every country wants. I think where you start to, as a certainly as someone who believes in Western values and, and likes the Western organization of life, I think where you start to get worried is this idea that China kind of wants to remake the world order. Um, I don't think they want to blow it up like you know terrorists or, or perhaps Russians do, but they want to kind of so gut it and reshape it in Chinese institutions. And that means, you know, the USD isn't going to be the reserve currency or they don't want it to be the reserve currency. Or if it is still powerful, they want the renminbi to be right there alongside it. And so that okay. they can't be sanctioned by the US. They can't, you know, they can run their own empire of, of cash. Um, I think another thing is that they would like to have the UN 
the dynamics of the UN or whatever the international governing body kind of is much more aligned towards the global South. So Africa, South America, Asia, and US to have a role that is far less influential. Um, and in trade, as we, we talked about the, the Belt and Road Initiative, they want to be, they want to be the center of global trade. Like all, all roads should at ideally in their brains, I think link, be linked to, to Beijing. So I think that's the stuff that is a bit more, I don't want to say scary because I, I don't like fear mongering, but that's the stuff that I think is a threat to the Western order. Um, because a Chinese led world, you know, you might say that American led world has been from their perspective, been terrible, but you know, I don't think, and maybe this is my biases, but I don't think America really has used all of its leverage and its influence over the last hundred years for bad, if you know what I mean. And I think China sees the world very differently to America. I think they would start to use a lot of the leverage they have to get things that they want. Um, you know, whether that's, as I was saying before, whether it's kind of like with Russia, oh, we could be friends or we've got the advantage so we can now get more out of you. That It's a bit more of a, like a, a might makes right zero sum game world. I think that they see with China at the center of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I'll probably get a lot of pushback from people who say America has been horrible over the last hundred years, which obviously there's been lots of mistakes, but um, yeah, I think that's the thing that you have to be worried about is just China wants to really use to replace America's role as the kind of center of the world. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that, and, and like you said, of course they do, you know, why wouldn't yeah. they, any country would want to do that. Um, you know, I think, I think the key for us is to just make sure that whatever happens, happens slowly um, over a long period of time. And with as fewer conflicts as possible. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's the key. I mean, it, it, in some sense, China's rise is inevitable, um, but you just want to make sure you don't get into a world war three over it. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good place to end, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we try so. to end on an up note, you know, we try to end on an up, we'll try not to, uh, we'll try not to end on, on, uh, on world war three. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. I feel like there's not, there's not incentive for them to do that. I feel like they have been incremental. I feel like we've been incremental with them and, you know, hopefully it won't, it won't get to that point. I also think that the promotion of democracies and democratic governments is the most important thing globally that the, that the U S can be doing now and the West can be mm. doing now, because ultimately, um, you know, do people really want to be, uh, you know, under the yoke of, of some, dictatorship whether whether or not it's brutal or this or that or the other it might not be as personality cult based as some other places but it's still definitely not a free country um you know do people want to live in a free country do what they want to live in a free world or not i think those are the questions that we need to you know have people ask and the answer needs to be yeah we like free world man it's good it's fun mm. we get to do podcasts with cool people and uh you know say what you like exactly <laughs> yeah. um th this podcast would be very dull if we lived under chinese rule yes she is wonderful <laughs> i think so too it's so great um <laughs> just huge so, bits redacted <laughs> <laughs> right. it's just like <laughs> um so tell people where they can find you you're on twitter I yeah, on Twitter at uh, John's Nonsense, because, you know, you've got to take yourself very seriously in this day and age uh, on Twitter there. Um, although less and less on Twitter, to be honest, I've found, you know, not to weigh into all that. It's becoming a little bit less useful. Um, yeah. Where else? Where So if you Google, if you want to sign up to the newsletter, I would, I would love all of your listeners to do that. You can just... If you stick into Google international intrigue, it's the first link. It's it's very clear. Pop your email in there and we'll uh we'll 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 hit your inbox five days a week with five minutes of of interesting stuff. Um and we've also got an Instagram account. I think it's at intrigue. Uh so that you know we post a bit of news there and a bit of fun stuff and try to keep it lighthearted and keep people, you know, from going into a spiral about how the world's going to hell. We sort of <laughs> ah, there's there's hope. <laughs> There's hope. No, it's I, like I said at the, at the top of the show. I, I'm a fan. I think that I think you're you're doing a great job with it. I think it's a it's a needed thing. I think that the spin that you're putting on it is is useful and good. And I think it's um it's updating the, the these models that 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 are um becoming obsolescent. Um, yeah. So you know, keep up the good work. All right? Do you guys have a podcast? Also, you do right? Or we do. Yeah. It's called Intrigue yeah. Out Loud, and it's um it's a mix. So we do like we're trying to do these twelve to fifteen minute, three times a week kind of 
a little bit more context around the news, but enough to sort of, you can just throw it on when you're cleaning the dishes or something. So a bit, a bit like this conversation, but if we just had one or two issues rather than solving all of the world's problems. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, we, we, tr- we didn't have quite enough time to solve all of them. We solved most. We solved most. <laughs> exactly. Solved, you know, 75% is not, is not so bad. Um, <laughs> so, uh, John Fowler, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.